Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. I'm going to start by reading you uh, a series of scriptures. You don't have to look them up. You can write them down, though, if you'd like to um, study them further uh, throughout the, uh, the coming week. But these are the words of God from Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 53, and Titus chapter 2. Isaiah 9, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Who has believed our message, Isaiah writes, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Just a few verses later, Isaiah writes, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore our sin, the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. And finally, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the words that you have spoken to us that have changed our very life. Lord, the words that you spoke that created the worlds, you speak to us to create in us or to birth in us the zeal that you had when you went to the cross. We ask, Lord, today that you would guide us in that zeal, that you would teach us that zeal, and that you would forever transform us to be a people set apart for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Suppose I offered to you a kingship, church. Suppose I offered to you a kingship, not just any kingship, but rather one which would carry the weight of the world. A kingship that would carry the weight of the world. But to better understand that, if Mel Brooks is right in what he says, that it's good to be the king, who would quote Mel Brooks in a church service, but if Mel Brooks is right, it's good to be the king, how much greater is it to be the king of kings? 
To bear the weight of the world is to be the king over all things. With it, this kingship would grant you many titles, among which include mighty counselor, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. And to that, there will be no end to the increase of your government. To the end, uh, that there would be no end to the increase of your peace. That is simply to say that once established, your justice and your righteousness would endure forever. Now, assuming that you would accept such an offer, such a kingship, the question that I have for you today is quite simple. Would you accept this kingship with zeal? Would you accept this particular kingship with zeal? Zeal is defined by Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, which means an excessive fervor to do something or to accomplish some particular end. Or as other Bible dictionaries say, a great hunger for. Could you accept a kingship in which it, it, it exalted you and called you king of kings and lord of lords and all these things? Could you accept that particular kingship with a great hunger? It doesn't seem too out of the question, does it? doesn't seem too out of the question. I think we would, we would all kind of go for that. As long as the good stuff is there, then I can have zeal for it all day long. The problem is, this isn't the end of the book of Isaiah. Clearly, however, God does accept this kingship and all that it's going to entail, all that it's going to bring his way, he accepts it with great zeal. This is why Isaiah 9 verse 7 says, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplishes this. It is the zeal of God that does this. But as long as things go good, we're willing to accept that kind of kingship. But when things get rough, that's the problem. So let me throw uh, the wrench into the machine here just a little bit. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, a passage that most of us are very familiar with. We've all heard it before. It tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways and that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Now, it's important for us to realize that higher here does not simply mean a measurement. It's not simply a measurement. Higher here means more lofty. It means a, a, a distance that is altogether set apart from uh, our view of high. This is why the Bible says that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. They are higher and they are, they are greater than the heavens are above the earth. That's how great they are. But here's the deal. We don't know the distance, right? There's no measurement for when the earth, there is a measurement, there's a knowledge of when the earth ends, but not where the heavens begin. Uh, something important for us to realize when we think about God's ways being higher than ours and his thoughts being higher. And that is that there are some thoughts of God, some ways of God, just like the heavens touch the earth, some that we can grasp, amen? Some that we kind of get our heads wrapped around. But there are many, there are many that are so far above us, so other than us, we can't seem to reach to these kinds of things. This is why many theologians talk about the kingdom of God in the terms of being an upside down kingdom. It's altogether different than what you or I know. So Isaiah 55 says, with respect to this kingship, Isaiah 55 says, God's ways are higher than your ways and God's thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And there's going to be a critical application to this uh, here in a second. Now imagine with me having the exact same zeal that we talked about for the kingship that we referred to before. But this time what we're going to do is we're going to add in Isaiah 9. We're going to add in Isaiah 53, which we read at the outset of the message. And we're going to add in Isaiah chapter 55. Here's the kingship. You get to be a king. Sure enough, you get to be a king. But now you're going to grow up a tender shoot. You're going to grow up a root out of 
dry ground, which simply means that you're going to be a king in a dry and weary land, okay? You're going to be a king in a dry and weary land. Nothing about you is going to be attractive, stately, or majestic. That rules this church out automatically. You're all beautiful people, okay? You're all beautiful people, and, but you can't be this to be this king, right? You're not going to be attractive. You're not going to be stately. You're not going to be majestic. As a matter of fact, you're going to be despised, and you're going to be forsaken. You're going to be known as a person of sorrows and acquainted, this word is amazing, acquainted, close friends with grief. Yippee! Sounds great, right? But wait, there's more. This is a really bad sales pitch, right? But wait, there's more. Your very own people, a king has to have subjects, right? Your very own people are going to hide their faces from you. They're going to pierce you, scourge you, oppress you, and afflict you. Okay, that's the kingship that I've just offered to you. So let me ask you the question again. Would you take this kingship on with zeal? Hint, your answer is no. Your answer is no. Even if you assert that you would try or that you would try to do this, the truth of our fallen humanity is that we cannot take on this kingship. We, we would have to find a workaround for the need to be perfect, for the need to be sinless, and for the need to be a sacrificial king. And even if we could find that workaround, which we could not, we're not humble enough, we don't love enough, and the rescue of sinners is not enough joy set before us for us to endure the shame of the cross. We're not those people. It's an enormous task. More reason why we need a Savior. Amen? Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, and Isaiah 55, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the only person that can accomplish this job is Jesus himself. You and I, not qualified. You and I, not qualified. We don't even have to get in line for it, okay? You just... just it's already taken. It's not something that you need to do. The only one fit is the king of kings. But here's where the challenge comes. All of us are called in this life to accomplish the Christian life with the very same zeal that Jesus accomplished the cross with. Okay? So, so Jesus, despised and rejected, rejected of men. Yes, he's wonderful counselor. Yes, he's mighty God. Yes, he's prince of peace. But he was despised and rejected of men. He was, he was abused. He was beaten. He was scourged. All of these things. And Isaiah 9 says the zeal of the Lord accomplished this. That is an amazing idea. It was a great hunger within Jesus that caused him to endure the cross, despising its shame. We sang about that this morning, right? But Hebrews 12 tells us that we too are to have this very same zeal in our lives. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. It's worth taking a pause for a second to say, it's not as though Jesus uh, really reveled in the shame that he endured. It's not that he really reveled in drinking the cup of his father's wrath. It's not that he reveled in taking on the sin of humanity. How many of you know that? This is why he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, take this cup from me if there's any other way. He knows there's no other way, but if there's a way he doesn't have to embrace the wrath of his father, 
uh, he's going to do that, okay? So he goes, he endures the cross, he still despises its shame, and I think all of us, when we walk out the Christian life, are going to despise the pain we experience, Uh, but he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For us, when the going gets tough, we get going, right? When the going gets tough, we get going, we bail. But for Jesus, when the going gets tough, the zeal of the Lord accomplishes all things. The zeal of the Lord accomplishes all things. This is why I want us to realize that we need to embrace this kind of zeal in the Christian life. Because if we will embrace this, the same promise is true to us. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish in us what God wants. Amen? This is a powerful reality. So this is where the imperatives of the message begin. We've talked a lot about the indicatives. We've talked a lot about who we're supposed to be as Christians or who Jesus is in particular. Those are facts. We can't get around them. That's who he is. But now we start to transition into what we're to do in light of those truths. So the imperatives, that's what we're talking about. You and I are altogether unqualified to be the king spoken of in Isaiah. So take a deep breath, right? Praise God we don't have to be. Jesus is qualified. His mercy has been shown to us. We have everything we need. Beautiful truth, right? There is another, uh, I suppose, indicative that we might want to understand, and that is that we have been saved that we might live through him. We might live through Jesus. So that's a pretty powerful thing. But as his redeemed, we, you and I, are called to look and act precisely like Jesus. Can you, uh, can you amen me on that one? We are to look and act precisely like Jesus. We're to have the same dependence on our Heavenly Father. Same dependence. The scripture says that Jesus did nothing without you know, doing what his Father said, without obeying his Father. Whatever his Father said, that's what he was about. So we're to be the same thing. What God says is how we're supposed to live our life. So, dependence on our Heavenly Father. We're to have the same code of conduct governing our lives. This is powerful. This is powerful. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What was Paul's plan? To imitate Christ. So if Paul imitates Christ and we imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, our goal is to do everything that Jesus did. It is to be the people who have as their code of conduct all that Jesus Christ has called us to do. And for our purposes today, we're also to have that very same zeal as our Heavenly Father. I think this is beautiful. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9-11 through 11 says this, By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also, in imperative, we also ought to love one another. This is a really important thing. Verse 19 later on goes on to say this, we love because he first loved us. It's so important as Christians that we remember the truth that nothing of our lives is possible without Jesus first loving us. He's the initiator of all things. He's the beginning of all things. He also is the end. Hallelujah. Right? He's the beginning and he's the end. But he is the one who starts everything. He starts our salvation. He begins by wooing us through the gospel 
right? Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I don't know if you've ever put this in your mind before, but if God can call the planets into existence by speaking, by speaking the gospel, he can save sinners. That seems smaller than planets to me, but he can do it. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why scripture says, how can they believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? This is not just giving credence for my position, although I'll take the job security. It it is also what we're all called to do, right? We're all called to go into the world and proclaim the gospel, preaching Jesus Christ, teaching uh, people to obey all that he has commanded. The imperative is that we are to live through Jesus in this life. Each and every one of us to live through Jesus. And we love because he loved us. So we live through Jesus and we even love through Jesus. Again, Titus 2. This is such a powerful verse. Titus 2 says that God is making for himself a people zealous for good deeds. So where do we as Christians, where do we... uh, uh, where, where are we to, uh, how are we to live out our lives? With the very same zeal that God went to the cross with. Where do we get our zeal? Jesus. We get our zeal from Jesus because he loved us. So how do we do this? That's the big question. Um, how does my part in this story, how does my part in living out a life for Jesus Christ, how does it reflect the same zeal of one who went to the cross? Well, I'm going to start with a disclaimer like I always do. Here's the disclaimer. It's going to be hard. I like that. Somebody smiling. This is good. It's going to be hard. Okay? What did Jesus say? He says, if they hated me, they will hate you. Turn to somebody and say, the world's going to hate you. Isn't that such a positive church message? It's amazing, right? The world's going to hate you. This is great. So it's going to get tough. This is a reality. So back to that statement before, when the going gets tough, we better get going because we have a responsibility. It was told to us that it would be hard on us. We're to be zealous for good deeds, not only when it's easy, but also when it's hard. And we're to have zeal in the hard times. Zeal in the hard times means that we're willing to do whatever it takes. We have a great hunger to accomplish what God has called us to at all times. I'm going to elaborate on this a little bit more. So this is the picture that pops into my head all the time. That if we are a people zealous for good deeds, we will be so hungry that for the salvation of sinners, for the rescue of the world, for the furtherance of the gospel, and for the glory of Jesus Christ, we would be a people willing to ascend any hill, any mountain, any cross, even if it was covered in shards of glass. We are so hungry, nothing will stand in our way. That's what we are called to do. So, That's a nice flowery thing, right? And it definitely tells us that it's going to be hard. But how, in a practical way, are we supposed to do this? Well, we get our cues from the Bible. It's amazing. So Isaiah says, first, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish that. Say that with me. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Say it again. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. What do do all things begin with? God. What do all things begin with? Jesus. And Titus 2, it says that Jesus was sent to redeem us from all of our lawless deeds, purifying for us, 
Such a powerful verse. Purifying us as a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Who did the purifying? Jesus. Guess who started the the plan? Jesus started the plan. So the very first thing that we need to understand is that all of this starts by placing our trust in Christ. Now this is a message that doesn't make sense to a Pharisee. It doesn't make sense to a zealot because the zealot says, but, but I've got to do something. Well, you, you do in the right order, right? The, the Christian life is not a life opposed to effort. It's simply a life opposed to earning, okay? And so we don't earn our place before God. We, in view of mercy, follow after him. In view of mercy, we do as he says. But we have to start in the beginning by placing our trust in Jesus. There's only one way that we're redeemed from our lawless deeds. Jesus. There's only one way we're purified and refined, unpolluted, detoxed, if you will, since everybody knows that term today, from, our, from the sinful, sinful influence of our world. Jesus, right? That's the answer. Over and over, God's word declares absolutely everything begins with Jesus. God's word tells us plainly that the just shall live by faith. You know that, right? The just shall live by faith. You're going to live by faith, right? Come on, come on. Yes, I love it. Yes. Okay, the just shall live by faith. We're also told that we're saved by grace through faith. We're told that if we will confess with our mouth and believe in our, that's faith, right? Believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. If all that is true, then we are a people purified for good deeds right now. How many in here believe in Jesus? Raise your hands. He purified you for good deeds and to be zealous for them. So no more excuse. Oh, no, I'm messing with you. Okay, so you are are to be zealous for good deeds. The Lord of hosts will accomplish this. When we are born again, when we are regenerate, when we are purified, we are purified for good works, good deeds. And we're purified not just to do good works begrudgingly, but zealously. We've all heard the message before. We've all heard the grace message before, right? Uh, and I, I'm definitely not here to add anything to it to add some sort of, or to make some sort of different gospel. But instead, what I do hope is to accomplish is to teach you uh, a full gospel. That's my agenda in my life, okay? Teach you a full gospel. And that is to encourage you to put your faith in practice, church. To put your faith in practice, There is a life that we are called to live, right? Because the Bible tells us we're saved by faith, right? That's fine. But it also says faith without works is dead. Okay, faith without works is dead. Get the order right, that's important, right? In view of mercy, we live uh, honoring lives. Believing in Jesus for fire insurance is not what the Bible communicates, Believing in Jesus for fire insurance. Well, he'll just, he'll just repay me back for the things that I've lost. That's fine. Everything's good. That's not what the Bible communicates. Of course, trusting in Jesus alone justifies us before the Father. Of course, that's true. Of course, it's essential uh, in, in our belief. But, also, but so is walking by faith also. A continual submitting of oneself to the very same God who rescued us. A submission to the very same God who rescued us. Remember, grace saves us through faith, but God's words also says the righteous shall live by 
The word is live. It's active, right? It's an effort inside of this life. So the very first thing that we need to be zealous for good deeds is to trust that God has built that in us. I've told you guys many, many times, our want to is there as Christians. How many of you want to please Jesus? See, our our want to is there. Guess what's broken most of the time? Our how to. Right? Our want to is there. It's our how to that's often broken. And, And this is fitting with the overall narrative of Scripture. When you are born again, what would that put you as in life? Born again, you would be a baby, right? You'd be a baby. Guess what babies are? I got four of them. Ignorant, right? Okay, so they just all, and then I got a baby crying like I did something. Yeah, I'm talking about you. Anyway, take it up with my wife later. Anyways, (laughs) right? Babies are ignorant. What do we spend our days doing for children? Teaching them and training them. Why in the world do we think as Christians that we can come in, pray a magic prayer, bow at the altar, pray a magic prayer, and we've arrived? Why? Where in the world is that communicated in the Bible? It's not communicated in the Bible, right? Salvation is the beginning of a thing, not the end of a thing. So the first thing that you and I have to do is we have to put our trust, put our faith in Jesus, and then we have to begin the journey that's set before us. But let's start with faith. Let's start with regeneration. Let's start with being born again, and then we allow God to do the rest. Amen? Right? This is such a huge deal. So two, we've trust that God will accomplish all things, and he has done so for our purification. That's awesome. But he, is also, he also does this uh, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So we place our trust in God, and then we live by the Spirit. Right? We live by the law. That's what we do. No, 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 no. We live by the Spirit of God. Who does the Spirit of God want to glorify in everything He does? Jesus. Who does Jesus want to glorify in all that He has said to do? The Father. It's amazing that we don't have to worry about living by the law if we will live by the Spirit because the Spirit's not going to tell you to violate God. He's not going to tell you, He's not going to lead you astray. He's going to say, This pleases my Father. Let's go this way. Let's go this way. This is what we're called to do. We live by the Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse, 20, verse 2 and 7. This is so good. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Look at the indicatives just again, okay? Look at what God has done. These are facts. God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. God has called us by his own glory and excellence. God has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. These are facts. It really doesn't matter who wants to argue about them. These are what God has said. So we take him at his word, right? God has granted those promises. By them, we may become partakers, 
It sounds interesting because we have to lay hold of these things. But look at the next indicative. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Turn to somebody and say, I've escaped corruption. It's just weird words that you never thought you'd say to somebody on a Sunday morning. Hi, my name's Nathan. I've escaped corruption. Okay, so, but the reality is you have escaped corruption because of what Jesus has done. So those are the indicatives, but look at the imperatives. It goes on after verse 7, or it goes on. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence. Whose diligence are you applying? Well, that's how much diligence you're applying. Whose diligence are you applying? Yours, right? Not grandma's, not mom and dad, not your husband's, not your wife's, not the pastor's diligence. Your diligence. This is a, an imperative for Christians. We are to apply all diligence, but I want to show you this fun, uh, this fun move in the scripture, it talks, these are dominoes falling down, and they're just absolutely amazing. Number one, number one, you need to apply all diligence. If you're not going to be diligent, the next one doesn't come, okay? It's really hard to make the next one come unless you apply all diligence, so look at it. Apply all diligence. In your faith, supply moral excellence. Well, I thought faith was just a mental assent. I thought it was just believing in my heart. No, faith without works is dead. In your faith, Faith is always married to action in the scripture. It's just done in the right order. Faith must present moral excellence. Show of hands, how many of you are there? Woohoo! Yes, okay, so anyway, okay. In your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. Why is this following in order? You see, because when you understand moral excellence, when you begin to walk a thing, walk your talk, you begin to understand, you begin to know knowledge, what God wants, and even why he wants it. Amen? So, so you live out moral, a morally excellent life. In other words, you obey Jesus, okay? So you live out an obedient life, live by faith, in obedience to Jesus. And when you do this, what you grow in is why Jesus ever wanted you to do it in the first place. Otherwise, you're sitting there going... God is just a giant cosmic taskmaster that just tells me things to do. Jump, jump, jump. No, that's not who God is. He's got a reason behind everything that he does. So to your moral excellence, to your diligence, supply moral excellence. To your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. Show of hands, how many of you got self-control? This is not like patience. You should have some, okay? Anyway, you, everybody raise their hand one time. Okay, I know you hate me for this. Every one of us here, in some ways, has self-control. Does our self-control need to grow? Any of you saying no, I need to talk to you afterwards, Leo. Anyway, okay, so... Woo, okay, so anyway, so we are to add to our, to our knowledge self-control. When we know what God wants and we know why he wants it, all of a sudden something changes, doesn't it? We can be controlled for a reason. We can go, oh, there's a big reason for this, okay? So the dominoes keep falling. To add to your self-control, perseverance. How many of you want to be perseverant? You want to stand firm, you want to hold fast, you want to press on to the end? Yeah, look at the previous chain. It has to be there in order to do it. You will not persevere. 
You cannot persevere unless you have self-control, unless that self-control has been wrought in you through knowledge and knowledge through moral excellence and moral excellence through applying all diligence. Guys, the gospel is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So we let Jesus do what he does, not like we had to let him, but we accept what Jesus did, and then we, supplying all of our diligence, we give everything we have to him. We fall in line with this. But look what comes after perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. How many of you want to be godly? Of course you want to be godly. You want to live a holy life. Well, what has to come before that? All of these dominoes are falling and they're training you in how to be godly. Because somebody who is self-controlled, somebody who has knowledge, and somebody who has moral excellence, somebody who perseveres through these things is seen by the rest of the world as being a very godly person. They're a very godly person. And we're talking about godly according to the scriptures, not godly according to a Pharisee or something like this. After godliness, look what comes brotherly kindness. Oh, that is so fascinating to me. I want to be kind to my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I want to love them deeply. And God says, so follow my orders. Do what I say. Obey me. There's a reason for it. And ultimately, it's so that we can result in love. Okay? What's, what's the world want? What's the world want? All we need is love, love, love. Come on, you guys, jeez. Like you sing with the worship team, you just reject me. Fine. Anyway, all we need, all we need is love, right? That's all we need. But God's plan says something completely different. So you want, you want love. Okay, I'll give you love. You want love. I'll give you love. Apply every piece of diligence you have. Let that turn into self-control. Let that turn into perseverance. Let that turn into godliness. Let that produce in you all of these things, brotherly kindness, and guess what will result? Finally, it will result in true love. Otherwise, it's just worldly affection, and it's nonsense, church. It's absolute nonsense. So you and I, we've been purified. We've also been filled with God's Spirit, and consequently, we are to be zealous for good deeds. Those good deeds come when we fall in line with all of those pieces, right? The spirit, you've been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. You have no excuses. We don't have any excuses. We might need to learn, but that's a different story. Previously, I mentioned a critical application, and this is where it's going to get a little fun, maybe a little dicey. But that's me. So previously, I mentioned critical application. Here it is. God's ways are higher than our ways, right? His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, right? That means set apart, right? Okay. So this is best understood in clear application. This is where love comes hammering down. The world says love is this way. God says love is this way. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. You know this, right? It says that love celebrates, that love does not celebrate in unrighteousness. Love does not celebrate in unrighteousness. What have we learned up to this point? That we're to, be the, we're to be zealous for good deeds, including the love of God, okay? Including how he defines it. We're to be zealous for the love of God, and we're going we're to have the same zeal that Jesus had when he ascended the cross, Okay? The same zeal. We're going to accomplish these things because of the zeal of the Lord that is inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to not celebrating unrighteousness, you are not just to disagree with unrighteousness. 
You're not just to disagree with unrighteousness. You're not just to stay silent because you don't agree with unrighteousness. You are to zealously not celebrate unrighteousness. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You know what that means? That means Christians have to speak up. Did you know this? Christians have to speak up. We cannot sit quiet in our world. How many of you would agree by a show of hands that the culture is growing darker by the day? You would say that. Speak up. Speak up. What is darkness fought back with? Light. What is darkness? Unrighteousness. What is it fought back with? Zealous love for people. Love that says we do not celebrate in unrighteousness. But instead, we rejoice in the truth. We have to zealously rejoice in the truth. This is vitally important. We rejoice in the truth. Some some things in our world are just absolutely reprehensible. And we allow them every day. Abortion, probably one of the bigger ones, right? We allow this every day. We have systematically committed genocide all under the name of law, all under the name of some sort of higher authority inside of America. And guess what? Guess what? Christians now are sitting back and not zealously rejecting unrighteousness. So guess what happens? It just keeps going. It just keeps going. Same thing is happening in our definition of marriage. The same thing is happening in all of these areas, church. We are to be zealous for good deeds. God told us that, right? That begins with Jesus, right? He starts it. He gives us his spirit. We've been given everything we need pertaining to this life and godliness. And all of it results in this love that we're talking about. But we reject it. We push back on it. and We go, no, 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 no. I'll adopt the world's view of love and I'll just be their friend. I'll just be their friend. That's not the Bible's definition of love. We've got a problem, church. We've got a problem. The louder the, the, the sermons of the world preach the louder the sermons of the church should preach. Do you know that? So I'm just going to start preaching louder. That's my goal. No, I'm not. Right. But the louder they preach, the louder we preach. The the harsher they turn towards the devil, the harsher they turn towards unrighteousness, the harsher we should turn towards godliness. We should not be ratcheting towards their end of the pool. Amen? Should not be ratcheting towards their end of the pool. And this is hard. And if we really want to be loving, God says this is love. Sorry. You can love however you think you want to, but I do not want to stand before my God and King one day and say, I loved in your name. And he says, yeah, you didn't love at all. You did a lot of things in my name, but depart from me. I never knew you. Love is God's version of love, okay? So it's love. Now, let me, just, let me just pick on maybe a little bit of thing that happens inside of marriage. How many of you guys know this is another God's way? It's just a little bit lighter, a little fluffier, okay? It's a little bit lighter for you. How many of you know that we don't apologize correct in our world today? Come on, you know what I'm talking about, okay? We don't apologize correctly in our world. What we do is we make excuses, okay? So let's, let's say you've you got a husband and wife, and husband's just being jerk boy, right? Okay? And so... so I'm not talking about you, Jerry, but anyways, maybe, maybe I am. Anyway, so, okay, so, but the point is, husband's being jerk boy, right? Husband's being snarky. He's saying things. He's being very, you know, 
irrational and, and biting with his words. He's bitten his wife, not physically, but he's bitten her with his words, and it hurt, okay? Stop with your weird minds. Anyway, so, so he, you know, he's bitten her, and it hurts, okay? And here's what happens inside of marriage all the time. This is not God's way. This is man's way of doing things. This is Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The man comes and says to his wife, says, once he wakes up to stupid, right? He goes to his wife and he says, honey, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean it. You've not apologized and now you've added a lie to it. You know what an apology should sound like by that husband? It should sound something like this. Honey, I'm sorry that I yelled at you. I was very upset with you. I was angry. I was being mean. I should not have been. It is not what Jesus would want from me. I am sorry. You see, when that happens, you own what you did. When you say, I didn't mean to, what are you doing? You appeal to some part of you that does things that you have no control over. <laughs> it doesn't exist, right? It doesn't exist. You can't say the woman made me do it. The, you know, no, 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 no. You did it, right? You did it. We can't even get apologies right inside of our world. It's just downright sad. But if we're going to be the people of God, we're going to be a people that do things his way, higher ways, upside down ways. Husbands, wives, we should be willing to tell each other we're sorry and take ownership for our wrongdoing. We should take, hey, I'm sorry, work was bad today. No, I don't care if work was bad. Stop using it as your excuse. Just quit being a jerk. Husbands, turn to your wives and say, I'm going to quit being a jerk. You guys don't like me now. I know it. <laughs> say it, Jerry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, that was, that was bad. Okay. You obviously see the difference. Zeal, uh, here's, here's another thing, really quick, so I can wrap this up. Zeal can go wrong, though, okay? And this is a really important thing before we get to the third piece. Zeal can go wrong. The first way zeal can go wrong is that when, when we are zealous for the things of men more than we're zealous for the things of God. Zealous for the things of men more than we're zealous for the things of God. One of the greatest stories in the Old Testament is the story of King Saul. King Saul was zealous for the things of men more than the things of God. He was told to go into a particular place. He was told to slaughter everything and everybody. And he was called to do this because of, it was the justice of God. It was, it was an act of justice on these people who had rejected God. And so he was to do this, but he didn't do it. He listened to the people and thought that they would benefit from all of the bounty, all of the spoils of war. And so he came back. Uh, uh, who was it, Samuel? Samuel calls him out on this, right? Samuel says, what, what are you doing? right? And he lies to him. He says, I did what God said. No, 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 no. You didn't do what God said. And consequently, listen to this very carefully, church. Consequently, he, he lost the spirit of God and he lost his kingship. God removed himself from Saul. Why? Because Saul, Saul was zealous for the things of men more than he was zealous for the things of God. But then there's people who are zealous for the things of God unchecked. That would be the apostle Peter. He wants to do what his Lord and Savior wants him to do, but in the Garden of Gethsemane when they're arresting Jesus, he whips out his sword and cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear, okay? And many of us in this room are guilty for being overzealous for God. God said, do this, and we go beyond it. We're like, cool, you want me to tell that person that they have sinned and done wrong? Awesome. How about I punch them too, 
This will be amazing. This will be great. So we can go way too far with our zeal. Be careful with this. If the Holy Spirit leads us, we don't have to worry about either of these extremes. So finally, three. Here's how we wrap up. So we are purified by Jesus. We are filled with his spirit. And lastly, we are to grow in our understanding of zeal and good deeds. Titus chapter 3, verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Your want-to is there, your how-to is what's broken, right? So our people need to learn to engage in good deeds to meet the pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. We're all in the school of the Spirit the second we surrender to Jesus. We've become purified, we've become filled, and now it's time to learn because salvation is the beginning of a thing, not the end of a thing. We're to learn, we're to engage in good deeds. This learning has everything to do with both what good deeds are and why we're to perform them. This will enable us to do whatever it is that, uh, that it takes to be great inside of our zeal if we'll do what God says. If you've ever had to do a, a menial task in your life, but you've not understood why you were supposed to do it, it gets boring, right? A, a trivial task, is, you know, it's, uh, maybe a, a task that seems lowly to you, and you don't know why, it seems it gets boring. But if even a menial task, when you know the why, becomes something that you can zealously accept. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to stick with menial tasks all your life, but it, it does mean that you can zealously accept it. This is what we're supposed to do. Um, but last piece of zeal, I would be completely remiss uh, not to mention why it's so important to, in, uh, to learn to engage in good deeds. Here's what, here's what God's word says in, for, in John chapter 15. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I am the true vine. Jesus, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so as, to make, so as that it might bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Christians. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So much for universalism. Okay, so, but the point is, is that if you are not a fruit-bearing branch in the vine, this is a problem. What did, Titus, what did Paul say to Titus in Titus 3.14? Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet the pressing needs so that they will not be fruitful. Paul knows that unfruitfulness is dangerous. He knows what God has said. You now know what God has said. You are to be fruitful. You are to engage in all of these things. You're to give God the glory. You're to do all things because you have the Spirit inside you. There's no need for us to imagine that we are any kind of king. We already have a king. His name is Jesus. In him, we've been purified. Because of him, we've been filled with the Spirit. And in light of him, we are to learn to be zealous for good deeds which produce fruit in the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day.
that you've given to us. I do pray, Lord, that you would begin to shape our hearts, that that to hear the word of God proclaimed is oftentimes a word of indicatives, a word of truths that you have done for us. But also, God, it is a word that presents us with imperatives. It has called us to something. It expects something of us. You expect something of us. And today what we know is that you expect good deeds done with zeal, the very same zeal that Jesus had when he ascended Calvary. God, it is most assuredly a hard thing for us, but all the more reason why we lean into you. Because with you all things are possible and with you nothing is possible. Without you nothing is possible. You are good. You are faithful. You are our king. Be with us today as we go into your world and do as you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.